You know, Julie, it's been months now. We originally, you and I discussed having someone on the podcast to talk about ETFs because I think that the, the movement in that market has been so rapid. I still think of ETFs as like trying to buy a stock index, right? Or uh, maybe you want some basket of really, really specific stocks. But I think my understanding is lacking. And that's why I, I really, a few months ago, really wanted to have a guest on that could kind of educate us about this stuff. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think when I think ETF, things like passive, smart beta, these keywords pop into my mind, but I'm not incredibly educated personally on what all of that means. So to have someone that has really spent his career pulling the pieces together and articulate some of these key aspects and educational pieces is really exciting. And I think as our listeners uh, enjoy today's podcast, it, one of the things Tom said during the podcast, I thought you mentioned smart beta. He said, well, gets you into a whole conversation about what the heck is, what is smart beta? Does that mean there's a dumb beta and who wants dumb beta? Nobody must. So right as we start talking about these things, and sometimes I don't know about you, but people start reeling off these names and strategies. And I just nod my head like I actually know what's going on when I haven't a single clue. So that's why I was really happy that Tom Winkler agreed to join us on the podcast today. So why don't you share with our audience who Tom Winkler is? Tom Winkler is an institutional consultant for Hartford Funds. He's a relationship manager and sales consultant to RIAs, ETF strategists, family offices, and banks. Tom joined Hartford Funds in 2013. Prior to this, he worked for Northern Trust and Rydex Investments as a relationship manager and a sales consultant. He also holds the SEMA designation. So Julie, without further delay, let's invite our listeners to join our conversation with Tom Winkler about the past, present, and future of the ETF markets. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Julie. We're the hosts of the Hartford Fund's Human-Centric Investing Podcast. Every other week, we're talking with inspiring thought leaders to hear their best ideas for how you can transform your relationships with your clients. Let's go. Welcome, Tom, to the Human-Centric Investing Podcast. We're so excited to be chatting with you today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be with you both. So, Tom, we've known one another for quite some time, yet your experience in our industry, and specifically with ETFs and ETF allocators, goes way beyond your tenure with Hartford Funds. And so I was hoping you could share with our listeners a little bit about your own personal background and kind of how you developed uh, kind of an expertise in the ETF field. Thanks, John. I really appreciate that. And uh, this is a real privilege for me to be sitting here on the podcast talking about one of my favorite subjects, uh, ETFs. And uh, I've been fortunate to be in that space for uh, a little over two decades now. And, uh, you know, there's a host of different ways we can take this. So please feel free to redirect the conversation, uh, you know, and, and I'm very excited to be talking with two of my favorite Hartford Funds employees. Uh, you know, the audience may not know, but uh, these are wonderful uh, people outside of work. And Julie, uh, I, I would like to share with the audience, might be the only person that I know in my network that can actually have an in-depth discussion with me about marine audio. So we could certainly take this call in a lot of different directions. Uh, I know John and I can probably spend hours talking about uh, micro brews in South Carolina as well. But today we'll try and stick to ETFs 
Um, the industry's really gone mainstream. And, you know, 30 years later, with 3,000, almost 3,000 ETFs and six and a half trillion in assets, it's not going anywhere. And uh, when I first started, uh, I was uh, fortunate to be with a firm called Rydex Investments. And if you look at LinkedIn and kind of the people that have came out of Rydex, uh, they're running ETF firms, they're founders of ETF firms, they're in roles like mine all across the country. And it really was an awesome place to kind of learn the business. And they were what I like to call as bleeding edge. Um, we weren't cutting edge, we were bleeding edge. We had some of the first leverage and inverse strategies in the marketplace. We had the first absolute return mutual fund, the first managed futures mutual fund. And uh, we quickly got into the ETF space, working specifically with the RA community. And uh, doing that in the early 2000s was very, very unique. Um, it, was, it was such a great place at a young age to be learning the business and dealing with derivatives and ETFs and RIAs. And what, what really impacted me from that was the lack of industry familiarity and knowledge around the potential benefits of the ETF. And I do remember specifically taking uh, one of our uh, kind of uh, thought leaders in the ETF space to go see one of the nation's largest endowments. And the first question we got was, what are these things? Tell us about these ETFs. And I was blown away as, you know, a, a mid-20s kid uh, in this major endowment telling them about ETFs. So, you know, I had a passion for the space. I saw the potential there for positive outcomes for both uh, advisors and their clients, and really just tried to kind of uh, grab that trend and feedback uh, through time. And fast forward, uh, been able to sit in a seat with you all here at Hartford Funds representing that 20 years later. It's interesting, Tom, obviously, you personally are entrenched in the ETF process and, and history and have so much knowledge and, and experience around this space. But Maybe for those that are listening today that haven't been as entrenched in the ETF world, maybe we could start back at the beginning, take a walk down memory lane, and, and maybe you could share with us kind of the history and how the ETF space began and kind of kind of frame, frame this up for us so that we can uh, continue to see how the evolutions are uh, unfolding. I'll, I'll do my best, and certainly I don't have a monopoly on this story, but uh, there, there's a lot of ways to tell it. And I feel that uh, the way that I've kind of defined it in my head and shared it with others has been valuable where um, the industry beginnings go back 30 years, actually just celebrated the 30 year anniversary of SPY, which is credited with being the first uh, ETF in 1993. And SPY is actually not an ETF, it's a unit investment trust, but uh, details aside, uh, you had SPY and then you started to have things like the BRICS and some sector ETFs. And it started very much as kind of a surgical tactical toolkit uh, for mainly strategists, uh, some you know bespoke fee-based tax-sensitive RIAs and tactical users to essentially have uh, a toolkit that wasn't available to them in the mutual fund world. So in the early days, uh, you know, it was kind of cobbled together. It was really a fallout of a lot of what happened with the, the markets in the late 80s and some of the Black Monday fallout. And, you know, really wasn't, I think, um, what nearly what it's become today. As time went on, what happened was um, a, a number of catalysts really expanded the growth of the space. But, you know, people kind of caught on to the fact that you had additional uh, transparency, additional 
fee benefits, additional clarity around the structure that could be very easily used beyond just a tactical or a strategist lens. And, um, you know, you combine that with uh, where we've kind of come in the last, I'd say, decade in particular, you, you had a lot of broker dealers drop commissions to zero on ETFs. You had um, some share class evolution that I think really got started with the DOL rule that's now defunct, but really moved a lot of people to more clean shares, fee-based wrap programs. You had the retailification of brokerages. Uh, and a, a great example that I heard on a podcast the other day was, uh, it turns out Robinhood doesn't even have five-letter tickers. Like literally, you can't even buy a mutual fund ticker on Robinhood. So if you think about what that would do to kind of newer investors, um, you have this increased focus on fees and taxes and transparency, things you can kind of control as an advisor. Um, you have uh, some, some mutual fund capital gain distributions in negative years that have really kind of been painful for certain advisors. And then you, you have uh, rule advancements, uh, notably rule 6C11 and the corresponding benefits to advisors, uh, sponsors of ETFs, and certainly end clients that all have kind of combined to really accelerate the growth of this space to make it, in my opinion, a toolkit that goes well beyond kind of those early users that would use it in more of that tactical strategist kind of uh, global macro active investor using pieces of the puzzle type way. So Tom, let me ask you a question. And I think you mentioned because ETF started in kind of a, I don't know, they, they were very, they were kind of weird, right? You could buy things that nobody else was cobbling together in a basket and they were kind of like offshoots or they were largely passive. Right. So I think when most people, especially investors, hear ETFs, um, they're thinking they're thinking passive. Right. Um, the, the big index tracking an index so on and so forth. Or they're thinking these small little baskets is something that no one in, you know, who knows what they're going to think of next. But my understanding is that active versus passive has changed a lot in the ETF industry. And I wondered if you might have some comments on uh, on active versus passive in the ETF world. John, I'm so glad you brought that up. If there's one thing to take away from this podcast, my comments today is that ETFs are no longer synonymous with passive. And literally every day of my life, I'm in discussions about ETFs and someone is of the belief that they are still a passive investment vehicle. And uh, certainly that is not the case. Uh, I believe that the number is 35% of the flow to ETFs last year, 2022, went into active ETFs, even though they're only 5% of the ETF market. And that 5% is growing fast. Um, that rule 6C11 that I mentioned really helped to open the floodgates on active. Uh, and, and certainly in, in um, all asset classes, that is a relevant and appropriate way to think about ETFs going forward, that it's it's really moved from kind of the structure to the strategy that advisors should be looking at. Um, I think the debate's largely settled that, that many, many things in more traditional areas fit well in the ETF. And there's a number of benefits that you can't typically get in a mutual fund or an SMA. And, and, and to put a fine point on that, uh, in fixed income in particular, I think active is even more of an emphasis that I would highlight. Um, we're in the process of redoing some research from one of our sub-advisors, Wellington, 
on five reasons to be active in fixed income. Um, JP Morgan is also out there currently doing webinars on this topic. Um, the fixed income space is largely traded still OTC. It's fragmented. It's inefficient. Um, there's downgrades that indices would never be able to capture in time. Um, there, there's, there's a host of reasons that uh, besides just performance, the active passive debate in fixed income is, is far less settled. But I do think there's merit to active ETFs across all asset classes. Well, Tom, we obviously took a look at sort of where we've been and how this ETF space has evolved and fairly rapidly. You know, if we think about today where we sit in the present, what what is your thought about the State of the Union? What are some key you know, talking points, uh, characteristics for, you know, ETF users, or even those that aren't using them, you know, that are really trying to wrap their mind around this space. What would you say some of those key data points are for advisors to really be thinking about? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, how, how I think about it is, you know, you moved from passive cap weighted solutions and tools to get exposure to uh, a sector, a country, a broad market index. And, and, and you've essentially launched um, more sophisticated, non-traditional exposures uh, across a host of different mediums. So for those investors that would like to express an alternative investment or would like to explore factors or, or generate additional income, you can solve for so many things now. Um, and, and many of those things are actually not necessarily tactical. There's very core solutions that solve very important things that now, in my opinion, brings in a whole new tranche of investors. So if you were an advisor that's focused on planning and you have a, a strategic long-term investment approach, the benefits of the ETF structure and the fact that you now have potentially better options for even active exposures in ETFs, a vast majority of strategic allocators will migrate to the ETF chassis. Um, looking at ICI data, I think uh, the current number is 16 million households have ETF ownership in the US, which is I think 12%. Um, we barely scraped the surface. I know there's, there's estimates of uh, within 10 years, I think BBH said that we should have a $30 trillion ETF market. So I, I think that the innovation, the regulatory clarity, and uh, the continued uh, ability for the structure to bring in a new cohort of investors that might have typically been strategic in nature and focused on individual stocks or mutual funds or SMAs for their clients now have very viable options in the ETF structure that may also provide some of those additional benefits, um, such as um, you know the tax efficiency, potentially lower cost, uh, more flexibility and more liquidity, as well as better price discovery. So there's a host of things that could be beneficial to the advisor and the end client, even if they weren't um, a tactical user or invested in passive ETFs in years past. So Tom, the, the get off my lawn part of my nature says to me, whenever something is good, <laughs> there's got to be something that may not be so good. So I guess my question for you is obviously ETFs have increased access for all kinds of investors to the markets. Are there any potential downsides because of the proliferation of ETFs? 
Absolutely no downsides at all. No, I'm, I'm kidding. A hundred percent, you're right. It, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, get off my lawn. A hundred percent, you're spot on. And, and, and I think that the bad is the good, right? So we work with advisors every day. Advisors are needed more now than ever. Yes, this is great to have these tools and these solutions available to you and all the benefits that come with them, but you have 3,000 ETFs. You need to be able to understand that. Some of them have three times leverage to the downside. You got to understand daily compounding and the risks of that getting away from the return that you're expecting. There's trading and execution nuance that you have to understand when it comes to especially illiquid products. There's a need for really strong ongoing education. And you know they're double-edged swords. Some of these products you use options, they use derivatives, they use leverage. You need to know what you're getting into. And if you're on Robinhood with $5,000, you can buy something that might be a little too hot, a little too spicy for what you're trying to do. So I think it really just further uh, speaks to the need to have a professional advisor helping with these decisions and navigating this exciting space. I think that makes so much sense. And I think you were used the word education. And I think on so many of these tools and platforms that that really is the the cornerstone is for advisors to truly be educated and, and understand how all the pieces fit together. You know, I'm thinking of all the, some of the jargon that's swirling around in my head as it pertains to ETFs. You know, we hear the word smart beta and strategic beta and systematic investing and, and you know, and on. We could create a list a mile long of those types of, of phrases. But could you, in your definition, how would you define that or help us think about some of these more rules-based strategies? Because um, that's certainly an area that I am not uh, an expert in. Yeah, it, it's it's. Uh, I think smart beta has been a disservice to the industry as as a term. You know, it's a catch-all. Uh, it implies that there's dumb beta. There, there, there's a lot of a lot of issues with that. And I had the privilege of having this unique lens where we had the first equal weight ETF, and you also early on had the Rob Arnotts out there from Research Affiliates with fundamental weighted strategies. And then you went to single factor strategies like a low vault ETF or a value ETF. And then you went to integrated multi-factor ETFs. And now we're all the way to active and thematic and beyond. And I think that uh, what is the most important takeaway to me is um, you have cap weighted, pure passive beta exposure. You have pure active that's run by uh, a a human being uh, that's making investment decisions actively. And then everything else is in the middle. And that space in the middle there is very different and can be extremely um, different outcomes, even if they're in the same bucket of, let's say, low vault ETFs. So again, the need for education, for research, for advisor work to sift through that. But there's a ton of merit in that space between. And that space between represents things that are... um, really trying to take the best attributes of both. So they're not cap-weighted. They're, they're slicing that in a different way, whether it's through a set of rules, um, through looking at fundamentals, uh, using some sort of systematic process, but they're also trying to uh, achieve either defensive posture or outperformance opportunities or increased dividend yield. And all those are more typically attributes of an active manager. So um, I like to think of it as, you know, um, you've got your uh, non-cap weighted options. You've got your tactical single factor options to put things together yourself. Um, and then you have your uh, 
kind of integrated approaches that are really trying to, you know, essentially almost mimic what an active manager would do without the emotion involved and typically at a lower cost. That's, that's how I would frame it up. Um, and, and, uh, think about it through that lens versus uh, smart beta, which really doesn't tell you much. So Tom, we talked about how far ETFs have come and, uh, as with most things, just when you think there can't be anything else to invent, somebody innovates again. So just given your kind of broad view of the industry, where do you think things go from here? Yeah, I'm very excited about it. So I think everybody's career should be focused on what you're passionate about. And this has been the area for me that I think has been really, really exciting. So uh, not a week goes by that I'm not uh, listening to a podcast, reading an article about what's new in the innovation in the space. Um, just this week, actually, uh, BlackRock filed for a Bitcoin spot ETF, uh, which is kind of big news because it's really the first indication of a major traditional asset manager putting up their uh, intent to have a spot Bitcoin ETF. So it, it's constantly evolving. Um, it's not going anywhere. And I, I think it's really exciting to see that growth of pace of not only adoption, but product innovation. So to your point, John, um, you know, I didn't even know this. I was uh, kind of making fun of the single stock ETFs. And I'm thinking, why, why would you need an ETF to buy a stock? If it's just one stock, but what they're doing they're you know, they're offering a short position to that stock without having to short it. You just buy the long ETF. They're offering an options overlay so you can own that stock and get the options income or the option yield in addition to the stock. So, yeah, there's there's just constant innovation. I think it's really fascinating and it really just, uh, you know, is the future in a lot of ways. It's not the panacea for every situation, but it is the future in a lot of ways. And I think anyone that takes an interest in it will be fascinated by the evolution here, um, what's possible here, and certainly some of the things that are happening here. So I think that $30 trillion is uh, a reasonable estimate. I think that you'll continue to have uh, more users come into the space that typically didn't think it was a tool that was valuable for them. And I think that, you know, um, as an example, the, the custom baskets piece of the 6C11 rule will allow portfolio managers, um, you know, such as what we're doing in active fixed income to capitalize on some of these uh, rule changes. So there, there, there's, I would say it's exciting. Um, it's not going anywhere and be a lifelong student of the innovation of the space. And uh, I think, uh, you know, clients and advisors will be better for it. Tom, if I'm an advisor that hasn't dipped my toe in and isn't extremely well-versed, but has a curiosity and does like to learn and continue to understand what resources are out there for my clients, where, where would you start the educational process uh, if, if you were sitting in the chair of a financial professional? Yeah, yeah I think a, a lot of uh, firms, our, our firm included, a lot of firms have done a phenomenal job with the 101, 201, 301 coursework on you know liquidity, trading, best execution, things to avoid, um, pitfalls of ETFs. And so, you know, any of the five top asset managers you might be thinking of working with or currently working with should have some great ETF education for you. From a third party lens, uh, you know, I think Bloomberg and, and Eric Balkunis's team do a great job. They have a podcast called Trillions, which is also great. 
And then certainly uh, ETF.com and ETFTrends.com are really kind of the um, students of the space and do a great job there. Um, even uh, ETF Think Tank as well. So there, there's a host of uh, resources, um, both you know from the actual sponsors themselves and from independent third party. And there's no shortage of information out there on them. Uh, and, and these days, what's great is you can even get you know, videos explaining these things on YouTube, which is one of my favorite things to do for nearly any topic I'm looking at. So Tom, question, uh, are there any areas in particular that we should stay away from in terms of employing ETFs in the business? You, you mentioned earlier, they're not a panacea, they're not for everyone. Are there, uh, are, are there specific examples you could give us of where ETFs may not make sense? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I did want to mention it not being a, a solution for every situation or every one, uh, you know, and, 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 and that may change in the future. But right now, um, it, it, is, it is more difficult due to mainly operational reasons to own ETFs and retirement plans. So that's been a space that's, uh, you know, anything that's kind of qualified money's been largely limited to ETF access. Um, there are uh, situations where the trading aspect of them, the fact that they trade intraday and, you know, there are liquidity considerations and, and bid-ask spreads where, you know, if you're, you're an advisor to 50,000 small accounts, um, you know, it, it may be prohibitive versus just going in some sort of uh, no transaction fee mutual fund. So there, there's certainly a case by case aspect to that. And the last thing I would mention is, uh, you know, anything that's, you know, capacity constrained or, or complex or, or run in a synthetic, heavily derivative type way, um, or that's illiquid may not be great for this structure. So, uh, you know, if you're running a small cap uh, emerging market ETF that, that already has a good amount of assets in it and is, is closer to being closed versus open, one of the beauty uh, of the ETF structure is this creation redemption mechanism where market makers essentially can create and destroy shares of the ETF and essentially arbitrage away any deviation between the ETF price and the underlying value. And if you get to a spot where you're not offering more of the ETF, um, it essentially becomes a closed end fund and you could deal with major discounts or premiums. Um, uh, you know, and, and this is a little bit of a different example, but right now, um, Grayscale and Bitwise have uh, you know, Bitcoin type strategies in the market. Um, the SEC hasn't given full approval for an actual ETF. So these trusts are uh, trading at a steep discount to their NAV. So uh, that, that is problematic and causes issues. So I would say nuance around regulation, capacity consideration, complexity, synthetic derivative usage or illiquid situations would beg for further consideration potentially outside of ETF structure. Well, Tom, obviously we could we could talk all day about this meaty topic and and I think that it's exciting to think about the, the educational process for any of us. But if you had to to really synthesize sort of the future state, obviously we, we took our walk down memory lane and talked about where we've been and, and where the the sits right now. But looking ahead, what would be some of your key points as you think about the future of ETFs that you'd want to share with our listeners today? Yeah, Julie, thank you. My, my, my takeaways would be it's, it's a bright future and uh, they're not going anywhere and they're going to continue to expand and evolve in very exciting ways. 
they are not passive. So ETFs are no longer synonymous with passive. And I'd encourage everyone to consider expanding their definition of the vehicle to include the fact that it's gone so much beyond that. Um, the democratization of the growth in the ETF space increases the need for professional. So as we get more tools and more sophistication, it furthers the need for that education and that advisor guidance to make sure that uh, pitfalls aren't uh, reached. And then uh, I, I just, this is my personal one, but I think it's valuable for everyone is be a lifelong learner of ETFs. Um, don't stop learning and growing with the space. I think so much has changed and there's so many exciting new tools that are available. Um, I'm learning every week about ones that, uh, you know, might be interesting for my own portfolio. So Tom, the best thing about our podcast is not only do we learn a lot about things, investments or markets or whatever, we actually get to learn a lot about people and we do it through what we call our lightning round. So uh -oh. if you're game, Julie and I are going to fire a, a a bunch of questions at you and we kind of want your top of mind answer first thing that pops in mind so that our listeners can learn a little bit more about tom winkler so if you're ready julie why don't you lead us off okay i'll lead off with my favorite question on a scale of one to ten how good of a driver are you this could be car or boat i'll let you take it in whichever direction you want <laughs> well it's uh, 10 is the best right yes <laughs> all right so uh nine on the boat ten on the car <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Tom, are you a morning person or a night owl? Uh, definitely night owl. What's the best age? Right now. Dogs or cats? Dogs. There you go. Paper to-do list or digital? Digital for sure. All right, Tom, on a scale of one to 10, uh, one being highly introverted, 10 being highly extroverted, where would you put yourself on that scale? And would your spouse agree? So I, I would say it's day by day, <laughs> but I would say, I, I would say it's day by day, but it oscillates between a six and a four. <laughs> there you go. Do you prefer to shop online or go to the store? I hate going shopping in person. I was uh, a person that would hide under the rack in the department store <laughs> when my mom would, would be shopping. I just wanted out. And I think I'm still scarred from that. So, <laughs> um, iPhone or Android? So I, I've been in the Android ecosystem forever and, uh, I have way too many thoughts on this, but it's, it's, uh, once you're in one, it's really hard to change. And, and I think actually it's, uh, in, in my opinion, many ways better, but you'll never get people out of the Apple ecosystem. <laughs> Would you rather travel to the past or to the future? Ooh, the past. Are you right-handed or left-handed? Right-handed. Are you spontaneous or a planner? Uh, I am spontaneous. I don't plan very well. Tom, are you messy or are you neat? I'm pretty neat. Well, Tom, we can't thank you enough for your time today with us on the Human Centric Investing Podcast. And for those listening, if you're interested in continuing your own educational process, please reach out to your Hartford Funds advisor, consultant, representative, or visit hartfordfunds.com to learn more about ETFs. Thank you again, Tom. Thank you, John. Thank you, Julie. Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in for more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. 
And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Fixed income security risks include credit, liquidity, call, duration, event, and interest rate risk. As interest rates rise, bond prices generally fall. ETFs are not mutual funds. Unlike traditional open-ended mutual funds, ETF shares are bought and sold in the secondary market through a stockbroker. ETFs trade on major stock exchanges, and their prices will fluctuate throughout the day. Both ETFs and mutual funds are subject to risk and volatility. Mutual funds are distributed by Hartford Funds Distributors, LLC, HFD, member FINRA. Certain funds are sub-advised by Wellington Management Company, LLP, HFMC, and Wellington Management are SEC-registered investment advisors. HFD is not affiliated with any sub-advisor.